Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is movie producer, record producer, all-around creative wonderkin, Spencer Proffer. Spencer, good to have you on the podcast. Bob, it's good. I've been following you for years. Good to see you. Good to talk to you, man. Okay, so you have this new movie about American Pie, Don McLean's legendary song. How did this come to be? Well, it started when I was a student at UCLA. I pulled over when I heard the song three minutes in. I still kept listening. Six minutes in, I still kept listening. I was in a band. I failed. But I said to myself, if I ever grow up and get to be a, ma- a mocker in the music business, I'd like to do something with it. Four years ago, I heard from Don's manager after I finished my John Coltrane documentary with Denzel Washington narrating. And uh, Kurt Webster said, are you interested in doing a doc on Don? I said, I'm really interested because I knew that Don wrote American Pie to me, a great piece of poetry. Not that I put it with, you know, Keats and Shakespeare and Denison, but I consider it great, a great literary work. I said it would be my honor if I could do a doc on the journey of the song, taking Don up to when he wrote it, and then following the trajectory of the song for the life of the song, past, present, and future. That's what we did. But I got involved with it spiritually way back 50 plus years ago. Okay. What was the inspiration for the manager to call you to connect? I believe we had a mutual friend, Ray De La Garza, and he's seen my John Coltrane um, documentary, which was on Netflix at the time, directed by John Scheinfeld. And uh, Denzel Washington had narrated Bill Clinton, Common Santana were in it. It's real good. And my approach to making docs is very different than the normal bear. And possibly that that plus Forbes article that said that I was from the inside coming out, as opposed to guys like brilliant guys, Scorsese, Ron Howard, uh, Peter Jackson, genius directors, but they're from the outside in. As you know, Bob, 
because we met during your sanctuary days. I come from the music. I care. I get goosebumps. And uh, I want to make film that reflects the goosebumps. Okay. So he calls you. At what point do you decide you're going to do it? And what's the first step? First step is I immediately and viscerally and spiritually said I have to be involved. Then the question is who pays for it? who distributes it, who markets it. There's some wonderful guys running the uh, the new Paramount Global Company from Bob Backish, who's the chairman, to Bruce Gilmer, who's president of music. I've known Bruce for 35 years, used to be at VH1. So I called Bruce. I sent him the Coltrane film. I said, I'd like to talk to you about, gave him a little bit of the vision. He set up a Zoom call. Bob, Bruce, and I talked, and within 72 hours, I, I started the process. Uh, we papered it with his business affairs guys who were terrific. And lit- literally within three weeks, I was on a director search. So how did you know what the budget would be? Because I asked for it. And so I you just asked- pulled, the nu- pulled the number out of your rear end and said, this, so- this sounds to me like what it would take to make a Dominic Lane film? No, I said, how much is Bob Lefzitz's house worth? Now triple it. No. <laughs> No, seriously, I I can't spend less than a couple of million bucks to do something the way I want to do it. Um, We brainstormed what it could be. I didn't know who I would get. I didn't know how deeply Garth Brooks would get into it. I didn't know how many songs we would use to decorate the spirit of the time, the trajectory. I wanted to do new young versions of it to show the public that the song is not only a classic then, but it could be for the future. And we did. And I just estimated in my head, I pulled the number a little bit out of my butt, but I kind of knew what it takes to do it at the level that I want to do it. And it's not like a generic doc. Okay. If you make a deal with Paramount and the Paramount Plus, it ultimately is released on. And how many, how many rights do you cough up? Do they own it a hundred percent? Do you have a back end interest? What are the deals in today's documentary world? Well, the deals with me are different than they are with others. And I can't, you know, it's almost like Woodward and Bernstein. I can't reveal my sources. I can tell you that's the copyright is in the name of uh, my company named Morling, named after my children. I can tell you that they have the perpetual right to stream it. I have some territories. I have some extension rights. We've done an illustrated children's book on it, which is a prequel and it kind of talks about Don as a young newspaper boy learning about friendship and hope and how music permeates people's soul. I'm able to carve out certain extension rights to it, but I can't go into the details of what the deals truly are, other than saying, I continue, I'm making an Elvis comeback doc right now with the same people, plan to do many more. I really like working with this team over at Paramount Plus. So how'd you find a director? I looked at Different people's work over a period of six months. Don was tremendous in doing Zoom calls when I found someone I was interested in. We did four. And I remember when, God bless Ahmet Erdogan, when he was alive, he had told me of a director that had done the Tom Dow doc that actually dealt with the Great documentary. Right. And this guy is not famous. He's not a household name. He's not sitting with M- Emmys and Academy nominations like some of the people that I talk to. But I'm all about the work. I'm not just about somebody's resume or some, you know, that somebody's going to pay me to do something. So I looked him up. 
And I looked at a couple of other things, Mark Norman, that he did. And I said, oh, my God, this guy's really good. He really understands the zeitgeist of music and the evolution of music through periods, which is what that doc, the Tom Dow doc was. And I was also uh, working with Eddie Kramer, who is kind of one of the quintessential engineers. I am making Eddie stock through his Hendrix Rolling Stones Zeppelin period. And I said to myself, man, this guy Mormon really knows the stuff. I, I, I reached out to him cold and we talked and we bonded. He flew out to LA. I did a Zoom call with Don. Don trusted me. Don liked Mark and we started. Okay. Now the film goes extensively into the plane crash with Buddy Holly, the big bopper. Richie Valens has, uh, the actual cornfield that they crash in. How did you decide on the construction of the movie in terms of what was going to be the various, varying elements? Well, the elements were product of the brainstorming between myself and the director, but Mark has vision. He's a cinematographer. We definitely wanted to anchor this to the field of dreams in Iowa where the plane did crash. Don does pilgrimage. He did one 50 years later to the surf ballroom, which was the place, the last place that Buddy Holly and, you know, they did that concert. So all of this was the vision of you start there, but it's not a Buddy Holly doc. It's not a Iowa doc. It was just the anchor, but the song traveled way beyond Iowa. Okay. So I'm very interested having watched the film. Was the surf ballroom just preserved as it was because they realized the monumental effect of those artists do they have gigs there is it a museum i know that ultimately don plays there in the ve- in the film but what's the status of the surf ballroom today it's living and breathing it is considered a national monument they've kind of upgraded it you can see by watching the film the pictures of some of the icons who have played there and of course you see a tribute to richie balance and buddy holly and the big bopper but no it's a living breathing functioning place but at the same time it became the anchor of this dock to at least get going with it okay you have a long history of dealing with artists and one thing we know about artists it's their one and only career if they make a mistake yeah. it might kill their career and a manager producer whatever label can move on right how difficult was it working with Don, who does not have a reputation for being easygoing? I think Don is a brilliant, wonderful, warm guy, if you catch him properly. He's intelligent. He's got a number of degrees. He doesn't suck fools well. I had to be on my game, and I was. And he's got a very smart manager who also paid attention. But I found Don to be very gracious And he said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Every time Mark and I would come up with stuff and we'd have rough cuts of this, that, or the other, I'd share it with them. I'm very collaborative with the artists. And because I come from the music, as opposed to a suit trying to impose my view on it, Don became very collaborative. He was great. Who is Don's manager? A guy named Kurt Webster, based out of Nashville. Okay. So what did you learn making the movie about American Pie and Don McLean? Well, I learned the reveals that he decided to reveal. Who was the jester? Was it Bob Dylan? What was the thorny crown? Well, Elvis was the king, but he didn't wear a thorny crown because Jesus Christ wore the thorny crown. What I learned was what was inside Don's head and heart and spirit 
when he wrote a big song for the country. The marching, I used to run the SDS at UCLA, very much protesting the war in my younger days. And when the marching element came up in the song, little did I know that there was a march that was really happening. People were marching in 68, 69, 70, 71. I got it's very deep. It's much deeper than just a campfire song, but it's got a good hook. How did you segue from making records to making documentaries? By having directed a number of videos on the records that I produced, getting next to the creative as I've always been. And actually in 1997, I had the good fortune to work with Robbie Robertson, whose best friend at the time was Martin Scorsese. We made a doc on how Robbie kind of wanted to be in film, Scorsese wanted to be in music, how they teamed up after the last waltz. And I was able to work with uh, Ida Gorowitz and some people that I knew in putting that doc together. We had two Emmy nominations. That was 1997, before it was fashionable to do music docs. How did I segue? Because I come from the music and I care about what the songs and the music represents. It became a logical outgrowth for me as I started evolving my career and morphing it to the next step. As you get older, you don't want to babysit rock artists anymore. Uh, I had the good fortune to spend uh, three songs with Stevie Wonder that I got to produce and arrange music with him with the symphony orchestra, very different than Quiet Riot, very different than when I met you, Bob, when you were working at Sanctuary, I was producing the Wasp album, which wound up selling a couple of million records back in 1985. But I, I do remember you coming into my studio, and boy, little did I know that you would become probably the most articulate purveyor of pop cultures through your writing. So I'm really thrilled to talk to you, man. Wow. I don't know how to respond to that, so I'll just keep flowing. Okay, many <laughs> many producers from your era yep. have have no more work, and if they're they're living on their glory, then there are people like Tom Worman who did a complete one eighty and ended up running a B and B. In your particular case, did you ultimately see? Wait, there's no future for me in this. The game changes, I'm getting older, and I'm going to pivot to this. How conscious was the whole decision? It was a natural outgrowth. I never worried that I would be lacking work. I've been working since I worked for Clive Davis when I was 23. Um, I decided after having two children, I didn't want to babysit rock artists anymore, and I didn't want to be in the studio. So I started supervising music for film before it became fashionable. A good friend of mine, Jerry Offsay, became the head of production at Showtime. And if you look at my IMDb, you'll see 55 films that I quarterback. I mixed the scores. I wrote some title songs. And that was my gradual evolution. I didn't do it to make a living because I did a lot of back-end deals because I'm the kind of guy that eats what I kill. I don't try and front load anything. By the way, I, uh, I was up in uh, Massachusetts at Worman's Place. Tom is an old friend of mine. It's wonderful. I love the whole that whole Brookshire's area a lot, which is pretty cool. But no, my conscious thing was logical. In 2002, I teamed up with a buddy of mine. We made the first VH1 non-biographical movie, which I put together. And I decided, you know, this is kind of cool. Building uh, media 
out of music. And I started doing that way before it became super fashionable. I started that, as I told you, in 97. I did it any cost for VH1 in 2002. And it just naturally evolved to do that, making a difference in pop culture using music and media. Now, the music business and movie business are different in many ways. Certainly, the budgets are lower in music, and it's easier to get started. There are producers who have multiple projects, and they're waiting for funding for decades. What has been your experience, and how do you deal with this frustration? I kind of feel that I don't pitch, I share. And because I'm next to the talent and I get the proprietary rights, uh, IP is king and distribution is great. And for me, I don't have a problem making anything that I do get out to the world. It's a question of who's the appropriate distributor, marketing. I have a great team that work for me that I believe in, I trust, and we've all known each other for one guy does all my underscore stuff. I've known him for 40 years. But if you look at my site, the average longevity of my relationships to my team is probably a decade plus. And my model also is I pay out of budgets so they can go and build their life and do their work their own way. And But I've got fierce loyalty because maybe I'm a decent guy at the end of the day, but I really care about the art. Well, Eddie Kramer certainly deserves a documentary. Anything else in the pipeline? Oh, yeah. Um, you would know all these people because you are a student of the business and pop culture. My friend Del Bryant, who used to be the president at BMI, his parents, Felice and Boodle O'Brien, actually wrote all the big Everly Brothers hits. So the doc we're going to make is called, it's done, it's signed, it's papered. All I have to do is dream, which was one of the big Everly hits. But when you think of the people who covered some of the Bryant songs from Paul Simon to you look at the influence that the Everly Harmonies have had on McCart Lennon, McCartney, etc. We are going to make a doc called All I Have to Do is Dream, The Pioneers of Nashville. And I can leak a little bit about that because in the 60s, as you know, New York was a hotbed of new acoustic music and there were a lot of renegades there. Well, the Bryants were the pioneers of Bohemians of Nashville before it was fashionable, you know, to be cool in Nashville, which it is today. So they would have, Devil would be sitting on his dad's knee when Orbison and the Everleys and Carl Perkins and all these people would come over. And we're going to have demos that Della has. This is a doc about his parents' journey, but we're also going to deal with the music, but we're not going to do a generic music doc. It's really going to be about pioneering music out of a Nashville anchor. We'll bring it forward with some modern covers like I did with McLean, but really that's the project I'm excited about. Stephen Schwartz wrote Godspell Pippin and the current Wicked movie, which he has written. Uh, Stephen has elected for me to be his producer and produce the doc on his journey. Not a Wicked documentary Documentary on the kid who was at uh, Carnegie Mellon when he wrote Godspell. Then he went and wrote Pippin. Then he had a problem with Bob Fosse. Then he started writing music for films. He teamed up with Alan Menken. That's going to be an interesting story. We will do that. Working with, God bless his memory, Lamont Dozier was one of my dearest friends. We'd written some songs together when our kids had play dates. My younger son, Morgan, used to date his, not date, but go to school with his daughter. So 
he had written the songs that he wrote in the 60s, whether it be, you know, Heat Wave or Standing in the Shadows or this same old song. We lived that through the administration prior to uh, Biden. And so are we in a heat wave? Is it the same old song? Were we hearing the same things? So I've teamed up with a director who's a South African, brilliant guy, and we are sculpting the story from a South African point of view, culturally, but from a world point of view, because Lamont, after he left Motown, he toured South Africa, he toured Nigeria. We're just going to approach it a little differently than the normal person that we just do a soup to nuts. Hey, it's a doc on all these hits. Guys had 51 number one songs, but I'm interested in what those songs mean to people then and today, as we did with Lamont, as we did with Don McLean. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, going back to Dell, who owns his parents' songs now? Dell, House of Brian. He and his brother own a hundred percent. So I have no licensing issues. I have no sync issues. Everything is built in into my partnership with Dell. Great. So you're a student of the game yourself. What do you think about all these artists selling their catalogs? 
I'm talking about publishing catalog, primarily those Springsteen sold the records too. Well, yeah, we understand. And an old pal of yours who worked at Sanctuary was kind of next to that Merck. I think, right? Yeah, I think, and funny, I've you know gone back and forth with him. I'm proud of how he's built what his hypnosis company. I see what the big boys are doing, and I think that's really smart because if you're Paul Simon, if you're Bob Dylan, and you're after 70 years old and you can get three, four, five hundred million dollars for your work and still consult on it and still have a voice on how the things are used and licensed, I think that's actually really smart because songs are the bedrock of the business. Who owns all your rights? Me. So you haven't sold anything? No. Well, I did in the past um, because, well, these days I'm owning the IP to my films. I used to own the IP to the copyrights on the songs that I wrote and the records I produced. Some of them were owned by the distributors. When I got smart, I wound up having JVs after my Billy Thorpe experience. If you remember Children of the Sun? I of course. Wrote I wrote that. I produced that with Billy. It was on Capricorn when they went belly up. I didn't get a dime. And we sold a million records, Bob, in 1978. I developed laser computer animated laser light shows, started planetarium shows, and I didn't get paid a dime. I realized I need to control my IP a little more. So it evolved. I did go to law school. The only thing I learned out of that was that I didn't want to be a lawyer. A, and B, when Clive offered me a job, he could either pick up my option as an artist or take the job. I took the job. Kidding? Forget, that was the end of my recording career. So I've been that guy behind the curtain, the frustrated artist, that frustrated guitar player. My last hurrah guitar was I played with Ray Parker Jr. on the Tina Turner Acequain album. If you look and you Google it, there were only two guitarists, me and Ray. But you know what? When I got the chance to work with Jeff Beck, with Brian May, I said, wait a minute, these are real good guitars. If you see that guitar behind there, I use it to strum, you know, my hope my future grandchildren to sleep. But I tell you, man, I'm not as good as the people I've worked with. That's why I defer. Don McLean is one of the best guitarists you'll ever meet. Okay, the Quiet Riot stuff. Yeah. Uh, I assume that Sony owns the recordings. Are you still getting revenue from that, or have you sold the uh, rights to that? No, I still get revenue every quarter. And the masters, because at the time I didn't have the clout, I had the opportunity. Walter Yetnikoff gave me the opportunity, and that's the story unto itself, because they all hated that record. I made it. I directed the videos with a guy named Mark Resica, who is an out-of-work commercials guy. and. MTV actually, Bob Pittman and his team, Les Garland, um, helped me get it on the air when I put a second on my house, made the video at Cal Arts, bypassed the label, sent it to MTV. They put it on the air, went through the roof, the first uh, bang your head video. But I didn't own the masters. I own the publishing that I did sell back in 1991. Okay. You sold the publishing. Just on that. Yeah. What was your motivation? <laughs> Getting divorced. That's a good motivation. <laughs> Absolutely. How many times have you been married? Well, I have the best marriage a human being could have. <clears throat> I My first marriage was with someone you probably know of, Trudy Green, who yeah. 
And Trudy is still my dear friend. After 50 years of friendship, we realized we'd be better business partners than husband and wife. So that thing lasted a year in my 20s. Then the mother of my children, 15 years, when that didn't work, I met Judy by accident. She's been with me now 22 years. She was the publisher of the LA Weekly. She's brilliant. She's got a heart of gold. And rather than me talk about it on this podcast, people can read about her and Google her. But she runs my book division, and she is about the smartest person I've ever met in my life, next to my my kids. My kids are pretty smart, too. Okay. (laughs) If you stop working today, do you have enough money to get to the end? Yes. Okay, that's good. What, what's up with your book division? Well, I like the idea of making books, whether it's the book first and then the doc. I'll show you this Elvis book that Babs Lerman wrote the forward to. Just, just so you know, we're audio only. Oh, okay. Babs Lerman is a brilliant director. He, he's now crossed the 300 million mark with the Elvis film. My dear friend Steve, Steve Binder actually directed and produced the original comeback special. I'm in production on that now, telling the Elvis and Steve buddy story. Thelma and Louise, Butch and Sundance, Elvis and Steve. As you can see, when you watch the Baz Luhrmann movie, Elvis and Steve, though Steve defied Colonel Parker, he didn't want to do a Christmas special. And if you look, remember the scene in the Baz movie when Elvis says so, Steve, what do you think of my career? And Steve says it's in the toilet. It's true. So partnering with Viacom and Paramount Plus and Paramount Corporate and CBS um, on this, who are my partners, we are making the story from through Steve's lens. And the, it happened that Steve wrote a book on it. We published it. We put it out. He got Babs to write the forward to the book. He consulted on Babs's movie. And we're using the Babs movie, not using, but the, it's propelling sales of the book. When our doc comes out, it's also going to help. That book came first. Judy helped me put the book together with Steve. Steve wrote it. He's brilliant. He lived it. He is the only living guy who can truly speak to the Elvis comeback special because he's the guy who directed it, produced it, and conceived it. Um, on the McLean thing, when I got to know Don and learned his story of being a young paper boy and being inspired and being affected by Buddy Holly's death, Judy and I talked about it. She came up with a brilliant idea on how to look at the prequel to him writing the song. That's the journey. I have a distribution deal with kind of the A&M Records uh, Island, speaking of Chris Blackwell, of books called IPG based out of Chicago. And they're doing that book and a dozen other books for us. I'm making a book on every doc that I produce because I can. Okay. Going back to the uh, American Pie, you have recreations. They're done very subtly. At first, you think that uh, it's actually filmed from that era. That's an interesting choice. How did you and the director make that choice? First of all, I'm going to correct you. It's not recreations, plural. It's only a slight piece that exists, and that was Mark Mormon's genius because it couldn't. we couldn't get footage from 1971, but it could look like 71. It could feel like it. And Don guided him through it because Don was there. So if you do it and you do it with some vision, you pull it off. And I give a lot of props to Mark Mormon for doing that. 
Okay, let's pull the lens back. As someone who's been in the game for many decades, and what do you think about the recorded music business today? I think songs are the bedrock of music and harmony. I'm working on a doc with the guys from Manhattan Transfer Pentatonics that takes you back to the Andrews Sisters and the Mills Brothers and the Jordanaires. Harmony, songs, will always exist. How you sell it used to be eight tracks, used to be, you know, used to spin around on 78s to 33 to eight tracks to, you know, digital to now downloads. It's always going to have content. So what do I think of it? If the songs are great, I'm a big believer you use media to propel the songs. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing at this age. I'm doing it because I get off on it. I love it. I understand it. I relate to it. And yeah, money is a byproduct of the work. You do the work, the money comes. I don't do it for the money. I do it for the goosebumps. Once you have those, the money comes. I make a lot of money, but I make the money doing good work. Okay. Let's go a little deeper into the music itself. Okay. You made your bones in the rock era. What do you think of rock today? And what do you think of hip hop and pop? I think if there's a story, whether it's rock, whether it's bang your head, which became a social cultural thing. And by the way, I produced Tina Turner and Paul Anka, which wasn't rock before I had mixed records for Bobby Womack and Bobby Goldsboro. So I, you know, I had this great success as a rock producer, but I'm a music producer working with Stevie Wonder with the symphony orchestra, working with BB King. That's not rock. It's music. And I'm all about the music and I care about it. Stephen Schwartz, his songs that he wrote for Pippin and Godspell and Wicked, that's not rock. It's good music. I'm a big fan of songs. Laura Nero, James Taylor, Elton John, Cat Stevens. Those are my favorite. Paul Simon is my favorite writer, the history of my life, because when we all came to look for America, that was my story. I was born in Germany. I came to America when I was six. My kids are the firstborn proffers in America. So I'm all about it. And he epitomized the spirit of, of coming to America in a song. I love Paul Simon and I love songs. So what do I think of the music business? I think Taylor Swift is a fine artist because she writes songs. I think there's some artists that still harken back to songs. I think riffs and rap, if rap has a, a story to it, I dig it. I like anything that's storytelling. Okay, let's go back to Quiet Riot. Uh, Warren Entner and his partner were the managers. Was it David Jacob was his name no, or something like no. that? No, Warren was the sole manager. Warren used to be in the grassroots, and he, right. understood, he understood music. But no, he didn't partner. Maybe subsequently, he partnered with others. But during the Quiet Riot era, Warren was the manager. Okay, so Quiet Riot was a local band. Los Angeles, had two Japanese albums. How did you get involved? When I made my label deal with CBS in 1981, I had to have a day job because I was real poor coming up. So I was producing Eddie Money for the company. And I remember working for Clive that I went to a concert that actually when we signed Pink Floyd, I was drafting papers during the day. And at night, 
I go out with Gilmore Waters. We went to Hammersmith and I heard Slade and I heard them invite the audience to participate with songs like Mama, We're All Crazy Now and, you know, uh, Come On, Feel the Noise. And I thought, well, I, that just, I remembered that. So in 1981, I'm this poor guy producing any money, not that poor anymore, but I was producing it, had this label deal. I lost the window with Billy Thorpe because when those masters got uh, hung up in bankruptcy, I continued on with Billy because I built my relationship with the artist. We put out a Thorpe record. It didn't do much. And I said, holy shit, Yetnikoff gave me this deal because he thought I had vision. What am I going to do? I'm driving around. I hear police, uh, Roxanne. I hear soft cell on the radio, very passive. Then I hear KHJ radio playing, come on, feel the noise, the oldie by Slade. I said, holy shit, that jumps right out of the radio. A friend of mine was managing an epic band called Molly Hatchet, called um, Pat Armstrong. He said, are you hip to this band that's doing, I said, I'm friendly with Pat. He wanted me to produce some stuff for him. I said, I need to find a band who can sing anthem participatory rock songs. He goes, there's this band playing the country club in Reseda. I'm, I'm an LA guy. And they sing those kind of songs. The lead singer's demonic. He looks like a Marcel Marceau character. So I said, okay, you know what, Pat? You got cred with me. I got in the car. I drove off one night to the country club. And there were six people in the audience. And there was this group called, they were called Dubro, named after Kevin Dubro. Right. Rudy Sarzo was still working with Ozzy Osbourne playing bass for Ozzy. So I listened to them and I hear party all night. I hear bang your head. I'm going, okay, if I can convince these guys to do a cover, which I understood was really hard. And that's why the, the disconnect with Kevin and I started day one. But I had a studio, Pasha, the one you were in. And so after the show, I went up to them and I said, hi, my name's Spencer Proffer. Kevin was a student of music. He said, didn't you produce that Tina Turner album? I said, yeah. He said, didn't you get involved with Billy Thorpe? I said, yeah, I produced his records and I wrote Children of the Sun with Billy. I'm that guy. He said, wow, well, that's cool. I said, hey, I'll produce you, but you need to do something for me. I'll do three of your songs. I'll give you studio time. You got to do a cover. He said, I hate Slate. They're posers. I said, yeah, you might hate them, but guess what? They had a number one record in England. And if you do a cover, it's congruent with all your other songs. So he talked to Frankie Benelli, the drummer, Carlos, the guitar player. They couldn't get arrested. They've been shot everywhere. They've all been turned down. Poison, Rat, all these bands were totally rejected by the LA record community because music was passive. You know, Duran Duran was happening. Cindy Lauper, Girls Just Want to Have Fun was happening. Heavy metal was not anywhere close. Black Sabbath couldn't get arrested on pop radio. Okay. I took them into the studio. Uh, I did it all on spec on, on a weekend of my time. We recorded the first four songs, which became the Metal Health album. I dug it. I synced two 24-track machines together. I made it sound like we were in a stadium because I wanted to replicate what I experienced with Slade. And I mixed and I called Tony Martell and Don Dempsey at Epic. And I said, guys, we made a deal. My Thorpe record failed. I got some. They said, oh, what do you got? I said, I really believe in it. I believe it'll connect with the street. It'll connect with the kids. I flew into New York. My hair was longer than yours currently, Bob, and certainly longer than mine. It's down to my shoulders. And I flew in to New York. I sat in an 
off in a conference room and I played the first four songs on, on the uh, Mental Health album. By the second song, Tony Martell wrote me a note, we'll pay you the full cost of the album. We hate this. We, we don't get it. Would you please not play the rest? I wrote him back a note. I'm playing the four songs because I took the time to fly out of here. Listen to it. They listened to it. Then Tony said to me, we'll give you at the time I had seven. My deal was 75 all in. They own the world for an album. It increased after that, but it was that. So they gave, they made a commitment to me. Zach Horowitz was the lawyer. He became the co-chairman of Universal and they paid me the 75 grand. I then spent six months shopping those four songs. Everybody I played it to hated it, turned it down. Ahmet, Clive, Mo, Joe, all the guys that you know. So I called the Ethnicop. I'm revealing stuff that I didn't put in a book because I haven't written a book and I'm not going to for a few years. Anyway, so I called Walter and I said, you made a label deal with me because you thought I had vision. I need you to put out this uh, this quiet riot thing. I need to finish the album you've paid me. You don't have to give me any more money, but I need to make the record. He said, finish. I finished. Took me three weeks because those days, you did. Paul Simon spent three years making Bridge Over Troubled Water. I spent three weeks making the, the quiet riot album. I flew back to New York. I played it. They hated it even more. So what? <laughs> You know, and it's the album that sold eight, almost 8 million copies at the time. It would have been 25, 30 million albums today. But anyway, so Walter did me a solid, God rest his soul. And he put out 4,000 records under miscellaneous cue. Well, Bob, you know, when Cindy Lauper, when Michael Jackson's selling units on Thriller, 4,000 under miscellaneous cue means dick, right? So what I did is I got on a plane. And I went to the stations that took the Billy Thorpe record number one. And I went to KTXQ in Dallas, to KMOD in Tulsa, and I did interviews and they played Bang Your Head and the phones went berserk. To MTV's credit, why I love the Viacom MTV machine so much, they were doing call out research. And I got a call from a friend of mine at the time, Les Garland, who worked for Pittman. He said, you know, you got a record that's really tracking in Tulsa. KZAP in Sacramento and uh, KTXQ in Dallas, KMOD in Tulsa, I said, and KISS San Antonio. Those are the stations I went, did interviews on. So give me a video. So I called Martell and Dempsey. Give me a, give me a budget for video, whatever they cost. They said, when you get to 100,000 units, call us. Okay. So I said, you're wrong. This is the beginning of me bucking the, the man. And I don't care. I, it's funny, I did an iPod interview years ago. A guy called me a renaissance disruptor. Why? Because I care about the music. I don't care about what you, Mr. Sue, think. What I care about is what the artists in the street and the kids and the public thinks. So I put a second on my house. I had a business card that said Pasha CBS because I called my company Pasha because I like what the word meant. It started with the same letter as my last name. And I went out. I called an Every ad agency I knew because I thought a video would be like an uh, commercial. And there was a director named Mark Resica who was directing commercials, but he was out of work. And he was working with a lady named Beth Broday, who is subsequently became a terrific uh, film producer and doc producer. And 
I got Mark together. I put up the second of my house. I went, I talked to the dean at Cal Arts, and I said, your kids can work on the video. Let me have your venue. It's a CBS, because I had a posh CBS card, so I bullshitted him that this is a CBS thing. And he gave me access to their gym. We made the doc. We used some techniques to make 50 kids look like 500 kids. And I then bypassed Epic. I sent it directly to the guys at MTV. To their credit, they put it on the air 4 a.m., then 2 a.m., then 12 a.m., then 10 p.m. Then when it became a number one video after um, AHA's video, all of a sudden, the rec- then, I, then I told Warren, we need to image this band as a metal band. They're a pop band, but let's put them out. And I had a relationship with Don Arden because Don used to manage ELO. And I had brought ELO from England when I was running A&R at United Artists. So I got the band out with Black Sabbath. Then when it was time for the next record to put out, and we put up Bang Your Head. It didn't do much pop radio. But Come On, Feel the Noise, I thought, that's the single. So I serialized the video. The kid who caught the mask, because we merchandised masks, I brought the album cover to life because there was a mask on the album cover. Because every kid, it could be every kid, in a red leather straitjacket, he had to bust out of the room to rock, right? Bang your head. That's the video. So the kid who caught the mask in the first video, the mask was a crucifix over his bed. Come on, feel the noise. The band appears there, and they had to rock. The record went to number one. The record sold millions. Epic was my best friends. I renegotiated my deal for a 10-album put deal. I retroactively got my royalties up to where they should have been, because I know you're going to ask me about the business, but I gave the increase to the band. Why? Because I could, because my half of it, I was partnered. I do partnership deals, whether it be McLean, Dell, anybody I work with, Schwartz. Why? Because they're invested. I'm invested. But we make money if the work is good. I didn't make money on Quiet Right up front. I made zip. I actually lost money. But when it sold, I made a lot of money. You know why? Because the work speaks. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. 
Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, let's go a little bit slower. Metal Health, Garland puts it on. At what point does Epic wake up, or they don't wake up until Come On, Feel the Noise? No, they woke up when we started selling records, because when the video hit, MTV would be a driver of attention. And the band was out on the road, and Black Sabbath was doing some good stuff. They they have a wonderful machine. The Columbia record, or the CBS distribution machine, second to none, they woke up. And we, I didn't put on Come On, Feel the Noise until the album sold 500,000 units. Then we started kicking in, selling, having five days at 500,000 then. But now they woke up when the band did their job on the road, when MTV did their job, and the kids responded. And then they woke up and said, wait a minute, maybe this guy's right. Let's go back a chapter. Don Arden. Forget his daughter. He's got an interesting reputation. To what degree is it true? And what were your experiences with him? He's passed away and he had Alzheimer's before. So it's not like you have to worry about retribution. I don't worry about retribution unless you're a Republican. I didn't say that. Okay. (laughs) Um, Here's the punchline. Don was a gentleman to me because nobody at United Artists in America would release Jeff Lynn or Roy Woods Wizard because it was too cool. I flew over to England when I became head of A&R, and I heard Jeff Lynn. I heard, can't get it out of my head. I heard El Dorado. I said, holy shit, this is cool. So I was able to, because I was in charge of a 24 years old, had balls of steel. We put the record out. Don Arden became my new friend because, you know, and so when it was time for Quiet Riot 10 years later to find an act to open for, it was very logical because Don Arden, at the time when he was alive, he's he's a real good manager. He knew his stuff. Did he threaten people? Was he a tough guy? Did Bob Hoskins play the Don Arden role as the quasi-mob guy? I don't know. He treated me with respect, and therefore I can only say good things about him. May he rest in peace. Okay, just because we worked with him, how did you end up finding Dwayne Barron to work with you on the first Quiet Ride album? Because Dwayne worked for me, he actually picked up my laundry at the time, and he was kind of a junior guy at my studio. When my very dear friend, he's still next to me, Larry Brown, had a health scare, he couldn't do the spec work that I told you about on the weekend. So I asked Dwayne to join because I Dwayne learned the engineering process. This was his first time at bat. He did a great job. So I gave him the whole album to engineer. He built a career from that. Okay, let's stay with Quiet Riot. They have this monster album. 
You know, they paved the way for a lot of other acts. It's the heyday of MTV. How did the band react and what happened on the second record? When Kevin Dubrow, may he rest in peace, and I don't mind saying this, shut off his big mouth, that he was better. Ozzy is a, is, is a phony. He is the best rock artist in history. Seven and a half, eight million records went to two million on the second record. And radio started getting wise to not liking Kevin. How did the band react? They were pissed at Kevin. Ultimately, they threw him out of the band. How did I react? It hurt my bottom line, but thank God it wasn't the only act that I was working with. But how did the band react? Kevin was not the best thing for them. He's a great singer. He was a good showman, and he was an asshole. Okay, I mean, Kevin, who used to be around, it wasn't like he was hiding out, ends up moving to Vegas, uh, drugging himself to death. I mean, there are some people, you can see that coming, but I say, this guy's like a suburbanite. What was the, what was going on there? I lost touch with them after the band, after Frankie and Carlos threw him out of the band. We got a new singer named Paul Shortino. We made a Quiet Riot 4 album because I kept the brand alive. It didn't do what people expected. That was the end of my connectivity until they sued me for conspiring with CBS to steal the royalties because they were broke and I wasn't. And they lost. It got thrown out in summary judgment. The only time I've actually been sued in my career. But I lost touch with them. I don't know how Kevin imploded in Vegas. He was doing too many drugs earlier on. All of them. Frankie, actually not. Yeah, I mean, Kevin is Kevin. I don't want to speak ill of anyone. I just want to look at the future. I'm more excited about working with the people I'm working with than the people I had. Although I had good fortune. Stevie Wonder, total gentleman. Little River Band, Johnny Farnham, brilliant people, terrific guys. I've had the good fortune to work with some gentlemen, and I've had the good fortune or the bad fortune to work with some assholes. You brought up the asshole. Okay. As you mentioned earlier, you were born in Europe. What were the circumstances there? My parents were in Auschwitz and Birkenau. I was born. Wait, wait, wait. Let's let's stop there. They were literally literally in. in And how did my father survive Auschwitz? You probably are going to ask me. Exactly. He was a brilliant chess player, and he and his fellow inmates would carve little pieces of chess guys. They play the German guards. I learned this as a kid from my parents, of course. The Germans loved how Saul Profesorsky, that was my real name. If you look me up on Wikipedia, it isn't Proffer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Polish Jew that was uh, brought up you know, by Eastern European people who didn't speak English. Pretty cool. And the Germans wanted to learn how to play chess as good as Saul. So he was that guy that taught some of the guards how to play. One of them even, I'll never forget, my dad told me in Yiddish, because I grew up speaking German and Jewish to my parents, he said, I'm going to play the Fuhrer now that I know how to checkmate, you know, whatever. The point is, Saul survived. He, my mother, made it through. They ultimately moved to Germany. Wait, wait, a little bit bit slower. How long were each of them in the camps? Five years. Wow. And they, okay, where did they, where were they in Poland and what were their circumstances before the war? My father, they were in Sloniki, Poland, a small village 
where I actually had my younger son have his bar mitzvah. I found that temple that my dad had his bar mitzvah in, in this little village, 30 kilometers outside of Krakow. That's where my parents were from. And so your parents knew each other before they went into the camps? My father's best friend was my mother's first husband. His name was Michael Novotny. Michael went into the camps too. He was killed. He was gassed. They had a son named Benno Barry in English, my stepbrother. In 1948, he left. Uh, well, he, he got out of the camps when they were liberated. He went to Israel to fight for Israeli independence. He wound up being at the top of Israeli intelligence and passed away in 1972. So next year is the 75th anniversary of Israel's independence. I'm also working with a few friends of mine to produce a special on the 75th anniversary of Israel's independence. It parallels mine. I'm going to spend my 75th birthday in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and Haifa next year. Okay. What economic circumstances did your parents come from before the war? Poor, poor, and poor. My father made 20 bucks a week when he came to America after he exhausted the few dollars that he had made. He and my mother were really smart, so they opened a shop in Munich selling feather beds and quilts. And with a partner, my dad cashed out of that. He brought everything to America because he didn't want his only kid. I was born after the war to grow up in post-war Germany. We went to a movie once when I was five years old, and the graffiti on the wall, Bob, was Juden and Hunt, and, uh, Hunt, I forget, it's like Hunt and Juden forbidden, Jews and dogs forbidden. My dad broke down and started to cry. And he said he didn't want his only son to grow up in Germany. So we packed it up. We took the boat over. We did the Ellis Island thing, lived in New York. Wait, wait, a little bit. Wait, weeks. wait, slow down for a second. The war is over. How do your parents find each other? They knew each other in Slomniki, Poland, because my mother's husband was my dad's best friend. Right, right. But there was a whole issue after the war of literally reconstructing and finding people, taking ads in Jewish newspapers, etc. Do you have any idea how they reconnected? No, wasn't there. I do know that I'm a product of their love. And nothing I love more in my life than my parents who came to America, like Paul Simon said, they all came to look for America. That's my story. I came here when I was six years old. Okay, so you came here when you were six. Do you have any memories of living in Munich? Just the, the, the graffiti on the wall when my dad cried, just playing with my German shepherd dog because my parents wanted me to have a dog. My son Sterling has a new shepherd. My two kids grew up with German shepherds. I'm a, I'm a dog guy. Judy, my, my wife, my best friend, Loves dogs too, but we had pugs. They just passed away. But anyway, do I have any recollection to answer your question? Okay. You get to Ellis Island. Is that where the name is changed? No. Or when is the name changed? My parents didn't speak English. I did okay in school. We lived in Albuquerque. We moved to LA when I was 10. They became naturalized citizens when I turned 16. My dad said, do, we, do you want to, Sammy, because they called me Sammy. If you look, my my Polish name was, or German name was Salik, and Samuel is the name I was going to school with. And I had my bar mitzvah ring that said SP. So my dad said, 
This is an opportunity if we get our citizenship at the age of 16. Well, my favorite actor at the time, I started becoming pretty tuned into things, was Spencer Tracy in Inherit the Wind. Started with an S. My favorite band was the Steve, uh, the Spencer Davis group with Stevie Winwood singing, Keep on Running, one of my favorite songs of all time. So I decided Sam could become Spencer. Proffer need, Profesorsky needed to be shortened because I didn't want to go through my life with the name Sam Profesorsky, which is what I started high school with. So Spencer, my bar mitzvah ring SP, Sam Profesorsky became Spencer Proffer when I turned 16, which is when the name changed him. Okay. You go through Ellis Island. Did you have any relatives or did your parents start a hundred percent fresh? You were in New York for how long and how did you end up in Albuquerque? Six weeks in New York. The only Jews my parents knew from Poland lived in Albuquerque. So we took a train. We were in New York for six weeks just to get our bearings, stayed in a hotel. I have a few memories of that. And we took a train to Albuquerque. I got the shit beat out of me as a kid going to school in my first day at school because my, my mom wanted a little girl. I wore later hosen. I didn't speak English. And there were many wonderful Hispanic and Indian people there who thought that I was somebody who could get beat up on. So they beat up on me. And that's that was my first experience in America. How long did you live in Albuquerque? Four years. And were although you had these Jewish friends, how many Jews were in Albuquerque? Very few. And did you feel the anti-Semitism? Totally. And usually children of immigrants, certainly Jewish parents, want their children to do very well in school. Did you feel that pressure? All day. That's why I got my BA at 20. That's why I passed the bar at 23. But at the same time, I love music. I started playing guitar when I was 15, 16. I used to, with my buddy who went to med school, write songs to Beatle lyrics, write um, lyrics to Beatle melodies. And I wanted to do that. I started a band with my buddy. And we got signed. We had four different record deals, ultimately signed by Clive Davis to Columbia Records. That's how I met Clive. That's how I got that job while I was in law school. Okay. What are your parents doing for a living in Albuquerque, and what is their motivation to move to Los Angeles? My mother was not super well physically. She was a housewife. My father fixed sewing machines and made $20 a week. He worked for Brother International, and he was he's Saul, one of the kindest, nicest, most wonderful guys. He was so good at his craft. He was so meticulous. Like he approached chess, he approached fixing sewing machines. When Brother International set up their offices in Los Angeles, Saul got transferred to be a mechanic in Los Angeles. We moved to LA to Boyle Heights to the heart of the Jewish ghetto. Okay. At what point and to what degree did your parents end up speaking English? And since you know, the other thing is to, they probably didn't understand what your life was about. And to, to what degree did you uh, exercise freedoms that if they knew what was going on, they probably wouldn't have approved? I'll tell you a funny story. The first time I got whipped by my dad with a belt. Okay, first of all, they started speaking broken English 
I enrolled them in night school because I started supporting my folks when I was 13 years old. That's a long story. I started selling newspaper subscriptions. I started making a hundred bucks a week. I would help my dad buy the food. We'd go to Canner's Deli every Sunday. We'd buy challah. We'd buy egg bread. We'd buy all kinds of stuff to eat for the week. But um, I'll never forget my dad playing chess at a uh, park and with these other refugees from Poland, and they had a daughter who was 12 and I was 12. And I wound up in the bushes with the daughter. And <laughs> and all I can say is when I got home that night, I got beat up by my dad. Sammy, how dare you go into the, yeah, whatever. So, but my parents were wonderful parents. They were the biggest influence on me spiritually and ethically than any human could ever be. That's why I have such a strong immigrant dreamer mentality. That's why I'm such a fan of the current administration. I love Michelle Obama and Barack Obama. They were two of my favorite presidents. And anybody who's about immigrant against immigrants and dreamers is not the side of the coin that I grew up with. Okay. And you end up going to high school where? Fairfax High. Oh, you got a Fairfax Eye, you know, a fountain right there on Melrose, a fountain of uh, music legends. What kind of student were you? I mean, not only academically were you were good, were you popular? Did you have a lot of friends or did you go home and study? What were you like? I was popular. I was smart. I was class president. I was playing sports. I was an all-city football quarterback and I had a couple of girlfriends and I got right into UCLA right after at the age of 17. And what was your experience like at UCLA? Fabulous. I love the campus, but I had to work. My dad had a heart attack. He didn't speak good English. I bought him a liquor store on Washington Boulevard in Culver City. What I would do at UCLA is I'd go to, I'd open the store, drive down with my dad, then go, because that was Culver City, UCLA's in Westwood. I'd go do my classes. Then I would go, teach young kids guitar, make a few bucks doing that. Then at the end of the day, come back, my dad would be sitting across the counter just selling liquor and stuff. I'd bring him home. That was my life for about three years until my God, my dad got too sick to do that. Then we sold the liquor store. Okay. You <laughs> were in the 60s. You know, there's an explosion of music certainly in Los Angeles, never mind in UK and the rest of the world. You are in the heart of the action. Do you feel it? And to what degree are you embracing it? I felt it. I loved it. I had a girlfriend whose boyfriend was Gene Clark, who was the lead singer of the birds. So I would, I met Gene, I met Roger McGuinn, I met all those guys. So I was able to get into Ciro's the night June 1st, 1965, when they played Tambourine Man, which was their big cover that blew it up, blew up. I was kind of there. When LA, LA scene, I was a big, tall kid. I was smart enough to talk my way into the troubadour. And I loved that early music. That's where Elton first, I saw Elton John when he was brought over. Russ Regan brought him over on uni. That's when I saw Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Jackson Brown, Carol King, I embraced it all. I love Stephen Stills for what it's worth. It was one of my favorite songs of all time. So for me, as a kid growing up with this, it really rang my bell. My parents didn't know shit from Shinola about 
what any of that was, but I was a good boy because I did good in school and I supported them. But more importantly, I loved them. And they loved me. That to me permeated my soul for the rest of my life. Okay. Now, simultaneously, you were playing the guitar and trying to make it as an artist? Yes. I had a record deal on MGM. I had a record deal on ABC Dunhill. I actually had a single out that I used for a TV show I wrote music for called The Hardy Boys, called Namby Pamby. In the days of the United Fruit Gum Company and Yummy Yummy, I Got Love on My Cummy, I had a single that I sang and played guitar on called Namby Pamby, You're Sweeter Than Candy. Anyway, I had these record deals until I started getting influenced by Edison Lighthouse. Remember, My Baby Loves Love and some of those songs. So I put a band together where I was the lead guitar guy and I wrote the songs with my buddy, but I found a good singer named Joe Reed. So I had a band that was signed, the Clive signed called Proffer, Marmals at Reed. And we had a record that went, I think, 99 to, with an anchor. <laughs> and, and, but that was like my first real, not real record deal, because I had three record deals before that, but that was the first time that it was really kind of cool. And when I met Clive, to his credit, I auditioned for him at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and the lawyers that I got to work for me, that's a long story on how I got them, actually said to Clive, this guy's doing well in law school. I was executive editor of Law Review. You know what that means. I was published. I was one of these kind of overachiever guys which I still am to my detriment. That's why I talk too much. I work too hard. I care too much. But you know what? When I leave this planet, at least I will have had a great run. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Let's go back to the initial three record deals. How does a little, you know... Little Pisher, you know, uh, ends up getting a record deal. Because I'm a smart little Pisher, and I was a decent-looking Pisher who had girlfriends whose bosses worked at some companies. And that's how I wound up getting Herb Albert deal on a breast to cover one of my songs because I was dating Don Costa's assistant, and Don Costa was a major major guy was producing Sinatra. And I went to a Sinatra session just as a fan way back at RCA on Sunset, way back. And the session finished early. And my buddy and I, who'd written songs for from almost Adam Reed, had written this instrumental thing. So Don let me have, because it's three-hour sessions, you know, union sessions. So Don let me have, I, I made up the chord chart. I gave it to the guys. We did it. That was my demo pretty good. And I read that Chuck K was the guy running Irving Elmo Publishing. And I kind of bullshitted my way into saying, hey, I have a song for Herb Albert, blah, blah, blah. I got in, I brought the demo, which was, I used the Sinatra musicians. And he said, you got anything else? Because Chuck K is a really smart guy. He ran a really great publishing company. Subsequently, I think he became president of Warner Chapel. Really good guy. And I said, yeah, so I went to the car, I got my guitar out, and I sang this song called Picture Postcard that I had just written. He said, Gary Lewis and the Playboys are doing a new album. They just had a hit with Rhythm of the Rain. I need to call Snuff Garrett, let him hear the song. So he calls, he holds up the phone, I get my guitar, I sing, I play it. Within two days, I was in my first recording studio producing my first demo. This was when I was 18 years old. When do you give up the dream of being an artist? <laughs> Shit. When Clive offered me a choice of picking up my option or taking a job, and I knew I couldn't sing for shit, I was 23 years old. Okay. So at what point do you decide you're going to go to law school? Was that something your parents instilled in you from a young age? Yes. And the fact that I would kind of logically do a lot of my deals or look at the paper. And I kind of thought that could be good. My, of course, my mother wanted, Sammy, you got to go to law school. You got to be a lawyer, you know, that good Jewish ethic. And I applied and I got in. So I decided I would go, but I still kept my band. You'll dig this, Bob. My third year of law school, I have a scholarship. And I already knew I had my job with Clive because Clive offered me the job when I was in my second year. So my third year, I just needed to get through. And I was doing real good. I was in the top 5% of my class. I hired people to take my class, my cl the classes to do notes. I'd go on the road with my band. Then I'd come back and I'd take the test. Believe me, I dropped my standing, but I kind of knew that I was just a crazy guy. How I passed the bar the first time, I have no idea, but I did. 
And I moved to New York because I knew I had my job at CBS. Okay. So how long do you work at CBS and what exactly are you doing? You're drafting contracts, anything else? Yeah. I was a shadow. I was listening to mixes. I was drafting contracts. I had a title as an assistant director of business affairs. So budget-wise, they could pay me through a particular pipe. Clive got blown out. You know the whole scandal. My office was down the hall. I, my dad had another heart attack, God rest his soul, and I wanted to move back to California. I was living in New York in an apartment and actually a brownstone that was owned by a photographer who was Gene Shrimpton's photographer, and I had dated her for a minute. That was, it was crazy. But anyway, long story short, I wanted to come back to California. So Erwin Siegelstein became the president of CBS. And they didn't want to lose me because they thought I knew what I was doing. So they offered me a big gig in San Francisco. While I was there, I wanted to come back to LA because that's where my parents lived. We'd sold the liquor store. So I started putting the word out. A guy named Mike Stewart was chairman of United Artists Records at the time. And he saw that I was looking for a job. So I had an interview. He gave me the job on the spot to be his number two guy. That's 24 fucking years old. So guess what? I didn't take the CBS San Francisco job. I took the job to be head of A&R, national executive director of the company. Stuart thought he was getting a clone, Clive clone. I'm not a Clive clone. Clive is his own guy in his own right. But he was a big mentor to me. And I respect the shit out of him. Sorry to use such good words, but I'm a rock guy through and through. <laughs> anyway, so the answer to your question is I took the gig at UA. And I, that lasted until Transamerica sold the company. Then I Okay, went wait, 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 a little bit slower. So what's your take on Clive? I think Clive's brilliant. I think Clive said to me after the debacle that happened at CBS, that since the guys that he had mentored, be it Dick Asher, Walker, Yetnikoff, they had their best quarter ever when Clive left. But I give it as a tribute to Clive and his spirit and his way with artists when he had started Arista. So I'm a big Clive Davis fan. I have a different style. I'm different. I come from the music. But the point is, what's my take on Clive? I have a lot of respect for Clive Davis. Okay, you go to UA. UA at the time is, this is before it ends up being merged into Capital with Artie, you know, with- uh, Artie Mogul. Artie Mogul, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a relatively moribund company- so that's a big change from CBS Records. Secondly, Mike hires you as an A&R guy. You're not going to do any business affairs? No. I'm going to be almost like a GM. So Harold Sider, the head of business affairs, would interface with me. The marketing people would. The promo people would. Ultimately, the guy who's head of promo, Ray Anderson, went to work for me when I started Pasha. Okay? I pulled him out of that. So what I did and how I dealt with this Moribound company as I went and listened to every record and every artist that was on the roster, most of which were sleeping. That's when I heard that the English company had Hawkwind, they had Roy Wood's Wizard, they had Electric Light Orchestra. I said to Mike Stewart, I got to get on a plane. I got to go hear what else this guy, Andrew, I forget his last name, had in A&R and the English company. But during the day, I would do the A&R gig. I would deal with the guys at war, Jerry Goldstein and Steve Gold. I had all that good fortune to get to do that gig. 
But at night, I put my hands on every record I could as a producer because I come from the music. So I had a dual job. I had 11 records in the top 50 in 18 months, Bob, as a producer. Did I get a royalty? No. Why? Work for an insurance company. Lenny Warnocker got a royalty. Russ Teitelman, the guys at Warner's did. I didn't. But you know what? I'm 24, 25 years old. Good opportunity. That's what I did. I helped build that asset up so that when Jerry Rubenstein and Artie Mogul came to uh, buy the company, I helped build it up so that they could make more money. So what year do you leave UA and what do you do? I leave UA and move in with Trudy Green, who you probably know, was a manager. Trudy was my girlfriend at the time. And we move into a one-room apartment with a four-poster bed and my guitar. And I, I, I was friendly with, I met Graham Nash through the Hollies because the Hollies were assigned to CBS. They were the first people to actually cover Springsteen with a song called Sandy. And Alan Clark was the lead singer. He had heavy, he's my brother, air that I breathe. And Alan wanted to make a solo record. And he asked me if I would produce it. That was the first time I took a superstar like that. Although I had worked with T and I've worked with Paul Anka. Remember, I'm a punk. And I make a solo record with Alan. David Geffen had was just in the process of leaving Asylum. But I actually played him a couple of songs that I decided I wanted to do with Alan. Because Alan had a voice of gold. I loved Alan. I thought Alan, his real name is Harold Clark. And he and Graham Nash, who's still my friend today, close friend, love Graham, um, started the Hollies. So I made the deal with Geffen. We made the deal on Asylum, and I made the album with Alan. What I did is I made a few dollars on that because I was partnered with Alan, and I made a decent deal. So we got to keep what we didn't spend. So I had friends because, remember, I was at UA, so I'd make deals with studios and stuff. I made the album for less money than I got from Electra Asylum, so that helped me a little bit. That's the beginning of Pasha. Let's slow down now here. You make the deal for the Alan Clark record, which is not a hit record. Geffen leaves because he thinks he's going to die, which turns out to be untrue. Where does that leave you? Knowing that Cut One Side, one of Alan's album, Blinded by the Light, was a hit. Because Alan lived near Manford Mann, who in England. And Joe Smith came over to take over. He and Mel Posner were running Electra. And I did Alan's album that was cut one, side one. We did a rock version of Blinded by the Light. When I'm told that this, whoever wrote that, the lyrics are too esoteric. <laughs> it's, it's too off the wall. We don't understand it. And Nikki Chen and Mike Chapman had had some hits, and I knew Nikki pretty well. And so they picked that song to release as a single. Didn't happen. I was pushing blinded by the light. People told me I was nuts. Manford Mann covered it, had the record of the year, 1977. Where did it leave me? Frustrated. But I had some frustration with Billy Thorpe when that company, Capricorn, went whoa, bankrupt. Whoa, 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 a little bit slower. Okay, the Alan Clark album comes out. Are you then done with Asylum? And how do you get hooked up with Billy Thorpe? Okay. These are great questions. You did your homework, man. Thank you. I remember all this. Keep going. Okay. And I remember it too. And the only reason I'm a little more long-winded about it, 
is because nobody has asked me these questions. No, and no, so, you're not. No, no, no. Go into this. Is what this is the juice. This is what I'm interested in. Okay. All right. I made four albums with Alan. Not one, even though it failed. The next album I did, I made the deal with Ahmet at Atlantic. We had actually we had a hit, but I'll tell you about that in a minute because you didn't ask me. What to talk about Billy Thorpe? So I went to a party in 1970. I'm now working for myself, and I have a few dollars because I made the Silent Clark deal, and it was a stiff. But I still I made my follow up to the Billy Thorpe album with Electra Asylum. They gave me a lot of money to do that because Thorpe, Children of the Sun, was a big deal. But Capricorn had gone belly up, and Billy... Whoa, 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 whoa. You're doing the Alan Clark record. How do you find Billy Thorpe and end up on Capricorn? Okay. So while I'm making the Alan Clark album, I'm invited to a party at a lawyer's house. And McFleetwood was there, and Alan Parsons was there, and all these people were there. And Billy Thorpe was there. Who's Billy Thorpe? Billy Thorpe was the Springsteen of Australia. Billy Thorpe could sell out stadiums, and he wanted to come to America to make a mark. And he was going to work with Alan Parsons, who was a brilliant talent before he started the Alan Parsons Project. But Alan had just produced a record by a group on Capitol called Pilot. And they thought that they should do the follow-up with their uncle's brother's cousin or whoever. So Alan didn't get the nod to produce the follow-up after having its magic being a huge hit. So I think Alan wanted to start his own thing. That's when he started the Alan Parsons Project. He was going to work with Billy. I met Billy at the party. So we just started talking. And I had just bought some paintings by a surrealist named Dario Campanelli. And I knew that Billy was kind of like thinking about things that are very extraterrestrial and very, you know, very tripped out. And I like, uh, I like impressionistic art. I love Monet. I love Van Gogh, but I also like Magritte and Dali. And Billy did too. So we started having an art conversation. Then we started having a music conversation and Close Encounters had just come out as a movie. And you see the last scene, aliens make contact with Earth. You don't know what happened after that. So Billy and I are hanging out. There weren't too many cute girls at the party. And he's a guitar player. He's a great guitar player, was a great guitar player. I played a little bit. So we said, why don't we go out and see this movie? Then let's go to my house and jam. So we did. And we saw Close Encounters. Then we went to my house. We smoked a couple of joints. We drank some Courvoisier. We were hanging out. And Billy, I was reading Carl Sagan's Cosmos, and Billy was a fan of extraterrestrials. So we made up a thing. The Earth was going to self-destruct in the year 1991. This is now 1977, 78. And Eastern Afghanistanian crisis was happening politically. So we said, we, we were talking, Billy's really smart. I like smart people. So Billy said, Americans and the Afghanistans are, Afghanistanians are going to team up to fight the Russians and the world will blow up. So why don't we write a song about that? Because we're off the wall kind of guys. And we made up a friendly race from another galaxy called the Children of the Sun. We're going to watch the self-destruction and come down from a crystal planet, made up planet, 
to offer the earthlings a choice of staying or leaving. By the end of the song, they're going to leave. By the end of the album, they're going to start a new civilization. That became my laser light show. So we wrote this song. Five in the morning, we finished it. It was like seven minutes. That's why I fell in love with the Don McLean song, because I wasn't afraid of long songs as long as they told a story. And Children of the Sun told a story, told a story of the self-destruction, of the destruction of the earth, and the optionality for the people who were left. That was the song. Okay, Capricorn. I went shopping that. We had the song. So I knew a couple of people because I had just come out of UA. Everybody hated it. Hated it just like they hated Quiet Riot. So I'm not used, I'm not against being told no, because I know how to say no. You turn it into yes to the side door. Okay. So there's a promotion guy who's working at ABC Records at the time named John Scott. I don't know if you know John. Of course I know John Scott. He takes a lot of credit for the success of uh, Tom Petty's career. Okay. Well, he can take credit for this. He heard Children of the Sun. He got it. And he was working at ABC. What did ABC Records mean to me? Well, Trudy and I started a management company. And our first client was Stephen Bishop. And Save It for a Rainy Day and on and on were number one records on ABC. John Scott was a promotion man at ABC, together with Charlie Minor at ABC. So I knew John. And I called John. I said, hey, I'm getting all these people to pass on the Children of the Sun song. What do you think? He said, it's fucking great. And I'm trying to remember the chronology of when I made the record, which I made on my dime on spec because I just built the studio. That's a another story on how I built Pasha, how I used borrowed money and all that. But anyway, John was friends with Frank Fenter and Phil Walden. He used to party with those guys. So when he told them about it, they came to Pasha, which I had just built. I lit some candles. I burned some incense. I played them Children of the Sun. They got it. So they said, we'll put it out. Okay. I had everybody else pass on it. John Scott promoted it for me because he left ABC, became an independent promotion man. The rest, that, that was the struggle too. That record only happened regionally. It happened in phases. Ultimately, it caught on. It became the biggest rock record after My Sharona. I think My Sharona beat it, but it was the number two. It's still on Sirius XM on Deep Tracks. It's one of the biggest recurrence of all time. But that was 1977, 78. It was on Capricorn. The Almond Brothers sued Phil Walden. There was a lot of money changing hands sideways. And I got stuck in it because I had a number one record and you couldn't buy the record because they couldn't press them because the company went bankrupt. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you could give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to 
bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, how did you decide and where did you get the money to build Pasha right there on Melrose? When I made my Alan Clark record, I made the deal, and I, I'm a big believer in the world outside of America because I came from there. So I made a deal, X, the asylum deal, the electric deal with US and Canada. I had a, I built a relationship with a guy named Freddie Hine, who'd also passed away. All these guys, Bob, are leaving us. Horrible. And I produced a band called Randy Pye. It was a platinum record in Europe. The only guy who spoke English was the lead singer. The rest of the guys spoke German and French, and I speak fluent German. So I made the record there. When they had the gold record party, Polygram flew me to Hamburg as a guest of being the producer. I met Don, Dr. Werner Vogelsang, who was a Nazi, I think. And, but I spoke fluent German, which is pretty cool. And I produced the record. He offered me the presidency of Polydor Records. I had already left UA because I'd done Alan Clark's solo record, worked on Clark, and I didn't want the job. I said, why don't I do a production deal with you? And we did a five-album deal. I negotiated. My lawyer at the time was Don Passman, who's turned out to be a fantastic lawyer, and he graduated to be one of the – he's still a dear friend of mine now 50 years later. And I called Don. I said – these guys want to do a five-album deal with me. Can you get on a plane? He said, well, he had just started his gang Tyrant Brown thing, and he couldn't. But I sat there, and I made notes, and he gave me all the notes that I should do. I go into a meeting the next day. I make this five-album deal in the form of a loan. 
the guys were speaking German to each other. They didn't think I knew. They didn't know I had a law degree. I'm listening to it all. I actually had to go take a leak. I started cracking up because they didn't know that I knew. I closed the deal. And I took the, the, the uh, recording budgets of that, some cash. I then went to City National Bank, a local bank. I got matching funds. I had Larry Brown, who was the engineer that Dwayne Barron took over for. His dad was a builder, and we built Pasha. How did you get the space? It was garbage space on Melrose next to Astro Burger. And I wanted to be in Hollywood because I thought it would be cool. And it was available space. And we just gutted it. And Larry Brown's dad and Larry designed it to my specs. I listened to it. We really made it state-of-the-art, the speaker systems. I synced up machines. I can, Larry is brilliant to this day. If you go onto my website, he's now an Emmy-winning composer, but he was an engineer. He engineered a lot of stuff for Zeppelin earlier. I, I'm a big believer that you keep your friends that are your friends. I just met most of mine through the business. My wife has a lot of friends that she met, not as a publisher of the LA Weekly, but as a pure soul, as a, as a good person. My friends I've met through the business, but some of them are great people that stayed my friends. Okay. Did you lease the building or own the yes, building? I leased it. I had an option to buy it. I was a schmuck. I should have. I didn't because there was a leak once and my current lawyer, my litigator, who's the smartest lawyer, litigator I know, we took on the uh, landlord and then he got upset with me because we beat him. He had to pay for the damage to some of the inside of Pasha and therefore he wouldn't sell me the building. So the answer is at least. Okay. Now you have the studio. What are you making? Making 14 years of a couple of hundred albums, but because I could build back studio time under my label deal, I would make a few extra dollars. What am I making? Hard, cheap trick. Little. I mixed my little river band record there. I worked with a lot of famous things and not so famous things. John Butcher, black artist who channeled. I did four albums with John, including one with Glenn Ballard, who wound up becoming his own guy. So I made good records there. It was great sounding stuff because I come from there. But when my kids came onto the planet, uh, Sterling in 1986, Morgan in 88, I decided to sell out. I didn't want to make records anymore, although I could. And subsequently, I still, 10 years later, did three records with Stevie Wonder. I did stuff, but I didn't want to do that as a career. I kind of wanted to graduate. And I was all about visual correlations and stuff. Anyway, when I started with Thorpe, when I was shit, 27 years old. So I decided I kind of wanted to go into that realm and put music and visual together. So that happened. My dad died finally, unfortunately. I moved up to Santa Inez before Bernie Toppin did. I bought a ranch and lived there for a year. Then I came back and a friend of mine became the head of Showtime, Jerry Offsite. So Jerry said, I'm going to change the look. We got together. We had lunch. I'm down Jerry. He used to be a lawyer, low below. And he said, I'm going to change the look of this network, Showtime. Would you help me change the sound of it? I said, I don't want a job. I don't need a job. He said, but if you put the compo, you, you hire composers, you decide what music goes where, we'll do the kind of deal you want. So I did a back end deal. I didn't take big fees, but I took a piece of, I took half the publishing. 
every film I've worked on, 55. You'll like that. I got a book. A, 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 it was VHS at the time. Every Showtime movie turned into a VHS, and Jerry had great taste. We made some great movies. So I got a lot of back in. That was good. So I did that for seven years, Bob. Okay, just we'll go back before we go forward. You have this deal with Polydor for X number of albums. How do you end up going to CBS? Because, okay, I have the Polydor deal. The Thorpe deal happens. They put out Children of the Sun internationally. Does good. Put out some other records. They're noble failures. They're really good, but they didn't make it. And I knew Yetnikoff when he was running international, when Clive Davis was president. And Yetnikoff became the chairman of CBS. And when I got stiffed on the Thorpe record and the Polydor deal was ex-North America, I wanted, and Jimmy Gersio started Caribou and he was a producer. He started Caribou in 72, but, and, and Clarence Avon had Taboo. These are really great guys, terrific guys who had their own labels. I thought, you know what? I should have a label, not because my ego, I should have a label because I'm going to do stuff different than the guy down the block. So I'd like to find talent and do something with it. So I called Walter and Walter said, boy, chick, you, you can understand. Of Walter, course. You should meet Tony Martell because Tony Martell, God rest his soul, Martell Foundation ran the division feeding into Don Dempsey at Epic. And Subsequent, it's funny enough, when Don Dempsey left, the guy who took his place was Ray Anderson, who used to work for me. Right. Crazy. Okay. It's six degrees. It's not six degrees for me. It's two degrees. Anyway, the punchline is Walter introduced me to Tony. He said, a guy like you should have a label. Tony was a match. He said, okay. So we did a really horrible deal. A guy named Zach Horowitz represented CBS. Be way before he went to Universal. This is Zach as a lawyer on staff. And Zach did the deal with me. And it was a great deal for CBS and a horrible deal for me. But that's why I went to do an Eddie Money project, because I could get paid as a producer, because my label deal was 75 grand all in for the world. Well, guess what? How much money can I make? Recording costs, even if I own the studio, I still have hard costs, still got to give it. I did a 50-50 deal with the band. I do it with all my people. I've done this my whole life till today. So I made nothing. But I got a label there. But then the first record I put out was the subsequent Thorpe record, which stiffed. So that's when I said to Pat Armstrong, who had Molly Hatchet at Epic, what the fuck I heard um, come on, feel the noise on the radio. That was the second record I put out through my deal. There you go. You say you had a 50-50 deal with the Axe. Go a little bit deeper. 50-50 of net? No. 50-50 of anything I make. If I if something comes off the top, it comes off the top. That's the same deal I do with investors and people now. You give me a dollar, you recoup your dollar. I don't get anything. Once it's recouped, if it's a success, we'll whack it up. Okay. So, Quiet Riot was signed to you. Correct. So, you weren't worried about a, a producer royalty because you were the label. Correct. But you'll like this as a lawyer. 
the label was signed. You know, corporations in California are people. But Spencer is an individual. So Basker Menon and I had a relationship. I did a bunch of records at Capitol as a producer, Little River Band. I put Butcher. Dempsey didn't think black people could rock. And John Butcher wanted to make a record with me. So I went to Capitol. I made a three-album deal as a partner with John. But Pasha was here. I had records at Pasha. After Quiet Riot, I had a lot more. And I was producing records on Capitol, too. Carmine Hit Peace has banned King Cobra. I did a bunch of stuff there. I'm one of those crazy guys that loves to work. Okay. But if you're getting 75K an album yep. for Quiet Riot, yep, and the record recoups, how's the money whacked up? Well, to answer your question, before it recoups, you do the second record. Then the band wants to do videos. My cheap videos became, they wanted the biggest directors. All of a sudden, videos are now $100,000. I made my video for $19,000. But that's recoupable. Zach Horowitz did a good deal. Everything is recoupable. So my deal is 50-50 after recoupment. But we weren't recouped until years and years later because we did a second record. The advance was bigger. Band got a big advance. Then there was a third record. They were never recouped. But so at the end of the day, did I get paid as a producer? A pittance because I own the label. So I did I get a label share? Yeah. But do I get paid retroactive to record one as a producer? Yes. When it recoups, didn't recoup. Did I get my label share? When you cross collateralize it against the other eight albums, did I see any money there? No. So the point is, did I see money at Capital because I wasn't getting it at CBS? Sure. I'm a survivor, man. I'm a survivor's kid. Okay. So you work with Showtime. What comes after Showtime? Your present uh, endeavor? No. So Jerry leaves Showtime after building that network up. I then make a movie for VH1. I make an MTV deal to build media using their platform. I then team up with an old friend of mine who you know, who managed Motley Crue at the time named Doc McGee. And Doc and I set up a company called McGee Proffer. We set up a joint venture together, partners, and we get offices together. That's how I met Darius Rucker, because Doc was, you know, Doc ultimately managed Darius. Doc is a real good guy, but he he didn't manage KISS. No, I think he did. Yeah, he did. He managed KISS. He didn't manage Bon Jovi or Motley Crue anymore, but I met Doc at Pasha when Motley Crue made their first record there. So Doc and I got together socially. I like Doc a lot. He's a very smart guy. He's very honorable. He's very ethical. And so my next chapter was McGee Proffer, and I would do stuff. I made a deal at VH1. We made a deal with um, Brian Becker, who's chairman of Clear Channel. Mike would consult them on building assets out of Clear Channel properties. It was an interesting period where I decided ultimately I want to do stuff with music and visual. And, you know, Doc moved to Nashville with Darius. Then I started this next chapter, Meteor 17. Okay. How do you get hooked up with Space Camp? Morgan, my son, who is now flying for United Airlines, he's 34 years old always wanted to be a pilot from the age of five 
when my, I love my children. My children mean everything. My holding company is called Morling, Morgan and Sterling. Okay. Morgan, when he went to the bathroom, when he sat down on the john, there was a 747 cockpit there. So he took off every time he took off. Okay. <laughs> so Morgan decided he found to his credit space camp. There was a space camp in Northern California. Then there's the headquarters in Huntsville. So Morgan went to space camp, his first sleepaway camp. I went there, I checked him in, I came back home. When he graduated, he goes to school, he gets a BA at American U, he's living in Paris. And he says to me, Dad, I want to go do some give back, back to space camp, because I learned fraternal skills. He went there eight consecutive summers as a camper. Very proud of my kids. And he learned to be a match at the highest order. And he said, Dad, I'm going to go back and be a counselor for the summer. Pro bono, $1.98. I don't even know what he made because my kids have their thing. It's theirs. My thing, mine. But my thing is theirs too. Anyway, bottom line is he said, Dad, there's a movie here. I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, there's a movie here because there's so many kids who aspirationally want to be astronauts and they want to be what I wanted to be. Let me introduce you to the CEO of Space Camp. So I got hooked up initially because Morgan went there. But then to make a movie there, Morgan introduced me to Deborah Barnhart, who was the CEO of Space Camp. I got on a plane. I flew there. I said, blah, blah, blah. I can do this. I can do that. I'd like to. I had an idea to make a film about the campers and make it some, you know, long story short on how the story came together, but Morgan helped me sculpt it because he lived it. I made the deal and I also fell so in love with the ethos of the place. I gave 25 scholarships out of, out of my pocket for kids who wanted to be space campers. We made the movie Walden Media. We were my partners, Walden Media, Phil Anschutz's company. Mike Flaherty was the lead guy. We made the movie Danny Glover, Mira Sorvino. There's some good people. It's called Space Warriors. And they had a put deal. We thought it should be a Disney Sunday night movie. But the but Walden had a deal with Hallmark. So the movie had to go on the Hallmark channel. I don't think it was the right channel for that movie. But what it was, it was wonderful. We won the set award for the best movie of the year teaching kids about science, space, and education. I give all the credit to my son, Morgan. So a couple of times you mentioned politics and being on the left side of the divide. As someone who's very worldly and has had the perspective of growing up and immigrating from Europe to America, how do you see today's world? Divided the way that Don McLean did when he wrote American Pie. We were a divided country back in 68, 72, when there was Nixon until things changed. How do I see it? I kind of, I'm that immigrant dreamer guy who just wants to do right. I want people to have the lives. I want people to earn what they make. I want them to keep what they earn. I'm a big believer in treating people right, never lying, never cheating, keeping to who you are, like I was brought up by my parents that I told you about. So how do I see the world? Messed up. Um, how do I feel about it? I want to make a difference in media, in pop culture using media, because I can't. That's why I did the rock and the core thing for the U.S. Marine Corps. I don't know if you know about that. 
Quincy Jones and I teamed up in 2005, and we did an event at Camp Pendleton for 45,000 Marines. Beyonce and Kiss headlined it. Doc let me have his production crew. We produced the event, and we formed a 501c3 so the proceeds could go to the people coming back from Iraq, Education Fund for Returning Troops, Reparation Fund for the families who got killed. I produced it. Doc McGee was my partner on it. Quincy Jones was the executive producer. But I didn't do that for politics. I did it because guys needed, if you're a, if you're a soldier, man, you're fighting for what you believe in. Whether you're on the left or the right, the bullets don't have a donkey or an elephant on it. So where do I come out? I come out right in the middle. I want everyone to get married and to be a unit. Is that the way of the world today? No. Whose fault is it? Not my, my place to say on your podcast. But what I want to do is I want to tell stories of brilliant music people. Don McLean being at the top of that list, Lamont, Stephen Schwartz, Del Bryant, who's a kid who grew up with his parents being Bohemians. And there's more. Lee Abrams. You know Lee Abrams? Very well. Well, Lee and I are doing a project called Sonic Messengers. It's about radio's impact on pop culture in the world. We just got John Cleese to be our executive producer because I want to see, I want there to be an English perspective on American radio through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Lee had the gumption. I met Lee when Brookhart Abrams took my Billy Thorpe laser light show and he had me as the guest speaker and I premiered it at the Ruben E. Fleet Space Theater in San Diego. Became friends with Lee in 1978-79. So Lee and I got back in touch. We're doing a project together too as partners, Lee and I 50-50. So those are the kind of people I like to work with. People who are smart, who are ethical, who have vision, and who want to make a difference. And Lee wants to talk about how radio permeated pop culture all the way to when he founded XM Radio. And, you know, we wanted to, we'll do some podcasts with you. We'll figure out what we need to do. But Lee's my friend. Del Bryant is my friend. Stephen Schwartz is my friend. Don McLean's become my friend. Why? Because I'm that kind of guy. I don't know. Well, you're a great talker, great salesman. You're still active. I'm sure you'll be reaching your hand out of the coffin trying to make one more deal. Uh, Spencer, <laughs> Spencer, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to my audience. Bob, I want to thank you even more for inviting me because your podcast, your blog is about as good as it gets from the modern music business, at least to me. And I agree with when you have your people write in, when you people say you shouldn't have said this. I say, hell with them. I agree with Bob. Judy loves your podcast. She doesn't subscribe like I do. I read it religiously, but my wife reads it and she goes, God, this guy's a good guy. You should talk to him one day. And guess what? We're talking. Here we are. Okay, great talking to you, Spencer. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sex. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.